we're always, that's the West Virginia thing, you know, there's too much vibe that's uh, coming across. I am going to ask you to turn to 1 Peter. Uh, he prayed for Ephesians, so J.D., I'm going to have to shift that prayer to 1 Peter if you don't mind, so that's in good shape. Peter has been a friend of mine in my years of being a Christian, read through the book many times, just the character Peter has been an encouragement to be, always a very interesting and challenging individual. The books that he has written, First and Second Peter, have been a particular help to me in my walk with the Lord. Peter is writing to a group of people that are spread through a very large region. As you read the introduction to Peter's letter, you find that he announces himself as an apostle. People would recognize him. He probably, along with Paul, was the most recognizable figure in the first century church. People knew Peter. He had been with Christ. He had walked with Christ. He had done many wonderful things. He had such a major leadership role in the early church. And so, being sent out by Christ, he is now writing to the elect exiles, he says, in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Of all those names, there is one that's probably most familiar to us, and that is Galatia. Paul wrote a letter to the region of Galatia. It's interesting, most of Paul's letters are sent to singular churches, the church at Ephesus, the church at Philippi, and so on. But when you read the introduction to the churches in Galatia, he announces it that way. There was a series of churches in this region, and so he's writing a letter that would be read in all of these particular churches. And so Peter is going to write a letter that is going to be carried forth by someone, maybe by Silvanus as he talks about in the end. But he's going to carry this letter and it will be read in all of these churches. I'd like for you to go to chapter 5 if you would please. Often when someone is preaching a sermon, they will kind of give you the direction that they're going before they start. Sometimes you don't really have that until the tail end. I always find it helpful to have some sense of idea of where we're going before we take off. But Peter concludes his letter by kind of giving us why the letter was written. And I'm sure as the people came, if you can imagine sitting in a, among a group of believers in one of these churches and this letter being read for the very first time to you, you're living in the first century and you're going through a lot of difficulty. You're going through a lot of suffering. If you are claiming the name of Christ, you are suffering hardship of one degree or another. And so Peter comes to the conclusion. He says in verse 12, By Silvanus, we know him also as Silas. He was a travel partner with the Apostle Paul on his second and third missionary journeys. He evidently now has transferred over. He is uh, serving alongside Peter. Peter's probably writing this from Rome. He says, by Silvanus, who is a faithful brother as I regard him. Now he gives us the purpose for which he's writing this letter. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. So what Peter is telling them here, that in this brief letter that he is doing, he has not gone into a tremendous amount of detail, but in this brief letter... He has exhorted them toward the grace of God. He's exhorting them to live by the grace of God. He's living, exhorting them to live to the glory of God by the grace of God. And he is declaring what is the true grace of God. It was that statement that really caught my attention and kind of led me to this text. We're going to do kind of a little bit of an overview of 1 Peter this morning. So we're not going to be diving real deep into anything but kind of trying to get an understanding of what is this true grace of God. And then we're going to receive the exhortation from Peter to stand firm in it. In order to stand firm as a believer, we have to know what we're standing in. We have to know to what we are anchored. And so it is critical that we have a sense of this true grace of God that Peter is going to present to us. I'd like for you to turn back to chapter 1, the passage that J.D. read. 
Certainly, as we think of the grace of God, we often think of it in relationship to salvation. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone. We understand grace to be an unmerited favor. It is God granting favor to us, something that He does not owe us. It is not something He is indebted to give to us, but it is something that God chooses to bring to us. And so, Peter is now saying, as he introduces this, as he's going to declare it, the way he goes about this is helping them understand their identity in Christ. Who are they? If they're going through suffering, if they're going through difficulty, if this is the true grace of God, what does it look like? How is this taking place in my life? And so he writes to them and tries to give them this sense of their identity. He simply identifies them with two very simple words in verse 1. Elect exiles. Elect exiles. He's going to pick up on this term, and we'll come to it in just a little bit and just touch on it very briefly, this idea of exiles. They were being scattered abroad. He no doubt is touching base with kind of some of the Old Testament background where the nation of Israel was scattered in various places during part of their history. But I think it's probably a play on words in the sense that he is looking toward people who are no longer citizens of this earth but have their citizenship in heaven. So he's going to talk about these who are part of the dispersion, the scattering abroad in this particular region. But I want us to focus on the term elect here because it is a term that he is going to now take and really amplify. He's going to give us some sense of understanding what it means, how this takes place. How does this show forth the true grace of God? As you might know, elect is simply a term that identifies the followers of Christ. There are many, many terms in the scriptures that kind of identify us. Believers, those who place their faith in Christ, the children of God, those who have been born into a relationship with Christ. We're called brothers and sisters. We are called the bride of Christ because of that relationship. We're called the body of Christ because we are in Him. We are a part of Him. And so each term that identifies Christians is a term that speaks to some concept, some aspect of their relationship with Jesus Christ. The term elect is one that is used in many, many places throughout the scriptures. The term elect here simply means, as Paul uses it, he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. The apostle Paul is also going to say in Ephesians chapter 1, so J.D., I did actually end up in Ephesians for a second here. The word elect is also translated by the term choose can be translated in the sense of who we are, but the action part of it is God choosing us. And so Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Part of those blessings he now identifies, even as he, God, chose us, the believer, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And so the term elect, again, is a very common term throughout the New Testament to speak directly of God's grace in our life, that God initiated, originated our salvation. That is where our hope is found is in Christ. He has chosen us. We are elected by Him. Now, let's watch the process unfold here in verse 2. They are elect exiles where they're from. Then in verse 2, he says, according to. He's going to use this again in verse 3, one that J.D. read just a moment ago. But the first one kind of includes the triune Godhead. How does God elect us? How does God choose us? How do we become believers in Christ? How do we become followers of Christ? How is our salvation truly the true grace of God? 
He says, according, first of all, to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. So we see Father, Son, and Spirit all very much involved in our salvation. The foreknowledge of God. This does not merely mean that God knew who would believe in Him and who would belong to Him, but as Peter is going to clearly show us, but that He had chosen to set His covenantal, and we'll talk about this in just a moment, His covenantal affection upon them in advance, foreordaining that they would be born again and become His children. We're going to see this definition kind of come to life as we read through these next verses. Listen again to Paul as he speaks about this foreknowledge of God. Romans 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now kind of file that in the back of your mind because Peter is going to kind of show us that the grace of God is not only in our salvation, but there is a true grace of God in the suffering that we are walking through. And so Paul now is going to say that all things are going to work together for good. Not that all things in and of themselves are good and easy and delightful. But we recognize that God is a sovereign God is providentially working in our life that the end goal is for our good and for His glory. He says, this God, Paul says, works together for good for those who are the called according to his purpose. He has a purpose for our life. For those whom he foreknew, same term, same thought that Peter's saying here, the foreknowledge of God. For those whom he foreknew, he, God, also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. In just a moment, we're going to see the Spirit's role in this, the sanctification part. Here, Paul just kind of lumps it together. He says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What God begins in the believer, he brings to conclusion. Peter is going to say that this is a hope that we have. That the salvation that God gives to us is going to be fully recognized at the last time. This glorification. When we will see Him face to face someday when we shall receive our resurrection body. That the salvation that we have is not just simply past tense, but it's also being taken place now. It's living forth now and will be concluded and consummated when we see Him. The glorification part. And so it is according to the foreknowledge of God. Next we see in sanctification of the Spirit. Sanctification, I'm sure, is a term that you're somewhat familiar with as you've listened to the Scriptures being taught. It is normally used in relationship to someone who is already a believer. It is that process whereby we are being set apart to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. It is how He is going to make us like Him. It is what He is doing in our life. And that is called a sanctification process. But the term here is used in the sense of setting apart. That's what it always means. But it's normally used in the context of a Christian. But here it's used in the context of a of God bringing us to Himself. It is according to the foreknowledge of God. It is in the plan of God. It is in the purpose of God that we are His. He has chosen us. And then the Spirit, it says, sanctifies us. He draws us. He sets us apart. He's an extremely important part of the Godhead in the salvation process. He is the one who is going to give us life. He is the one who is going to seal us in Christ. He's the one who's going to keep us in Christ. And so the Spirit is that sanctification process. The Holy Spirit is the person of the triune Godhead that draws people to faith in Christ, seals their salvation, and empowers them to live godly lives. I know when 
when I came to Christ many, many years ago, I've been a believer now well over 40 years, some of the things that we're talking about here were a little bit difficult for me to understand as I came into my relationship with Jesus Christ. A few years in, being a believer, even after I began to preach the word, and I began to really think through this concept of being elect, there were two passages that were helpful to me. Peter kind of deals with it, if you can think of it in this way. Peter's going to give us salvation from God's perspective, foreknowledge of God, elected by God, set apart by the Spirit, brought to obedience in Christ for the sprinkling of blood. All those things that we don't necessarily see, we recognize the impact and the effect of it, but we don't see it happening. And what happens is sometimes people get so caught up in the God part of it that they're asking questions. Am I elect? Am I this? Am I that? Or is this happening? When God simply wants us to respond to what He is doing, to have faith in Him. Listen to how Paul says this when he writes the church in Thessalonica. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you. Now notice what Paul is saying. We recognize the impact, the reality, the fruit, if you will, that God has chosen you. Now how do we know that God has chosen you? What does he say? Because our gospel came to you, not only in words, Sometimes the gospel is just mere words that come out of the mouth of a person going into the ear of another person. It isn't necessarily that they disagree with it, but there's nothing that impacts their life. It's just the gospel that Jesus was a man, he came, he died on a cross, he was buried, he rose again, and they're just words. But when we, how we can identify someone who has been called out by God is this. Because our gospel came not to you in, only in word, but also in power. It had impact. It had effect. Also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Paul said, you want to know if you're chosen? How did you respond? What is taking place in your life? Did you sense the Spirit of God doing something in you? Was it merely words or was there something taking place that is there? Was there life? 2 Thessalonians, listen to how he says it. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit, same language that Peter's using, through sanctification by the Spirit, and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the gospel going forth, calling people to repentance, calling people to faith. The Spirit of God is drawing, he's bringing forth all these things, he's equipping us with all we need, but from man's viewpoint, the gospel goes forth, be ye saved, come unto Christ. It's the Paul to the Philippian jailer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. And certainly it is that cry as we respond in faith, we recognize it is the true grace of God that has brought this about in our life. It is what God has done and it's for His glory. Let's go back to 1 Peter again. Obedience to faith for the sprinkling of His blood. A little bit different than what we normally See, we usually would put the term faith in there, you know, for faith in Christ, and that's probably the one that's used in an overwhelming way. But this concept is very true. It is when we place ourselves by faith according to what God has done. We obey the gospel. We believe the gospel. We respond to the gospel. We recognize the lordship of Christ in our life. And so the Spirit is drawing the person that God has chosen He's bringing him for obedience or for faith in Christ. And then this last one, for the sprinkling with his blood. Again, a, a little different than how we would think of it. We don't normally think in an Old Testament concept. But you have to realize that many of the readers of the New Testament, their understanding of God and relationship with God is born out of the Old Covenant. 
It is born out of all those things that they've been taught and they've understood. Now they've come and they've embraced Christ the better way. He is the fulfillment. He is the Messiah. He is that one and only sacrifice. But Peter now is going to cast back to the Old Covenant. Let me read the passage to you. It's in Exodus 24. This is Moses. Then he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So you can see that language, the Old Testament language coming in. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And so the sealing of the covenant was the sprinkling of the blood. Same thing is true. Listen to the language of the table, the communion table, that we often read from 1 Corinthians. This one's in Mark. Jesus is talking to them, and he says, he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And so it is that sense where we are sealed by the blood, we are purchased by the blood, we are redeemed by the blood. It is through the blood of the Lamb that we come into this relationship It is through the blood of the Lamb that we are sealed into this covenant relationship. He will never forsake us. He has made a covenant with us. He is sealed in the blood of His Son, and we are secure forever. That is the truth He's getting forth here. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Go down to verse 3. He's kind of given us the big picture according to the triune working of God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he uses the term again, according. According to His great mercy. Simply pointing out here that there is no external force upon God to extend mercy to us. It was purely an act of His love, of His grace, that He would extend mercy and forgiveness toward us who did not deserve it. According to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That is an absolutely glorious statement. God is the agent of cause. It is God who has caused us to be born again. It is God who has given us life. It is through the grace of God and our embracing of that What's so beautiful about that is that we did not place ourselves in salvation and by God's grace, we're going to be kept by Him. He brought us to that relationship. He sealed a covenant in Christ and we are going to be kept by Him. It is to a living hope. Isn't that a wonderful way to speak about Christianity? A living hope, not a dead hope. Not one that is just here for today and gone. But this is a hope that is as living as God is living because our hope is set in Him. He has caused us to be born again and then He looks ahead to a living hope. You can imagine if you're going through suffering, even martyrdom, that that would ring in your ears. A living hope. We have eternal life. We are alive forever in Him. When we die in this body, it is only beginning that stage of eternal life of coming into His presence. That salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So I think you can understand, if you're reading this letter, you're hearing grace of God, grace of God, grace of God. You come to the end and it's no surprise to you when Peter would say, Now this is the true grace of God. I've declared it to you. I'm exhorting you, stand firm in it. When you walk the Christian life, you stand firm in what God has done in your life. You hold on to that. You anchor your soul in the living hope which is ours in Christ. He says, to a living hope. And we are moving toward a glorious inheritance. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ is alive, therefore we are alive from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That's a great inheritance. We could stop and spend a lot of time there. 
But just think of the terms that he's using. They're all continual, continual, the consummation, the glory, the living hope. I like these next ones. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. It is the words of Jesus. I have gone to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. This glorious inheritance in the presence of God for all eternity, he says, it is kept for us. It is kept for us by God. And then he speaks about us. Not only is our inheritance kept, but he says, who, you, in verse 4, who, the believer, by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are kept by God's power. Can't you just see the neon lights? Grace, 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 grace. And our hearts say, glory, hallelujah, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. Even if we're going through difficulty, we recognize that time on this earth, we're in exile. I mean, we're, we're a sojourner. We're not a citizen of this earth. Our citizenship is in heaven. Life is a vapor, even though sometimes it can seem incredibly hard and long when we're enduring hardship. These are the words that Peter is exhorting them with. These are the words he's declaring to them. These are the words he's going to tell them to stand firm in. You anchor your feet. You plant your heart in this truth. I'd like for you, if you would, please, to go over to chapter 1, verse, excuse me, chapter 2, verse 18. We don't have time to read the letter, the whole letter today. It's not a long letter. He said, I wrote to you briefly. We don't have time to read it. But if you would, you would find it very interesting. You would find it very much like a letter. It is not like a textbook that has kind of sections that deal with subject matter. It kind of just goes through the ebb and flow of life. It just speaks about their salvation. It speaks about the grace of God that's going to come to them through what they're walking through in their life right now. It's going to speak about relationships, the grace of God that is helping in the relationships that they're in. And so it's just this kind of the stamp, if you will, of the overall life. But it's interesting as he comes to chapter 2 and verse 18, how he speaks of suffering. He says, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle masters, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, I like this next phrase, mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's a gracious thing. When we are very much aware of God in our life and we're living for God, He's the focus of our heart. When mindful of God, even when we are suffering unjustly, we do what is right and honoring to Him. He says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, so this is a part of the suffering, they are being beaten because of something they're doing that acknowledges Christ in their life. It doesn't identify exactly what they're doing. But they're doing something where they're honoring Christ and they're being beaten for it. They're being beaten unjustly. And you're beaten for it, you endure. But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious, or excuse me. But if you do good and you suffer for it and endure, this suffering is a gracious thing in the sight of God. One man wrote this about the idea of a gracious thing. It is grace because God has produced it. This endurance is an act 
that finds favor with God. It's gracious in the sight of God. It's pleasing to Him. When we respond in the right way, when we honor Him, on which He smiles with approval, it is a deed of covenant faithfulness to the God who has extended grace to them and as such leads to the paradoxical joy that we find in chapter 1. This joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let's take just a few moments and think about suffering. How can suffering be a grace? Suffering, I think is something that is difficult for all of us to walk through. Hardship. Suffering comes in so many packages. We're going to look at how Peter identifies it because this is the culture. These are the the life circumstances that these people are working through. He's not in any way giving us an exhaustive study on suffering. But he is going to help us understand a little bit about suffering. The first thing that we find that suffering includes, look at chapter 3, if you would, please, verse 13. That suffering shows the conflict of the Christian and the world and Satan. Suffering is a natural consequence of being a Christian because a Christian, just for the very nature of who we are in the relationship between the world and Christ, we know there's going to be conflict many times between the values and life thought and purpose and everything about a Christian and the world in which we live. We also have to remember that Satan is the god of this world. Satan is the one who in chapter 5 says it's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Satan is an enemy of God's people. And as such, we should recognize that we're going to suffer. Jesus Christ himself suffered in this world in which we live. He worked, he walked counter to so many things in this world and he suffered because of it. And so it is a conflict in 1 Peter chapter 3. Now there, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. But have no fear of them, the people who are causing your suffering, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may put it to shame, may be put to shame. Simply this. We stand for truth. We acknowledge Christ. Not in a belligerent way, but we are simply saying, I am a Christ follower. I am embracing the person of Christ and who that is. In many ways, that's going to make me somewhat different than the people in the world in which I live with. And sometimes that's going to bring hardship to me. When people ask me, why are you doing what you're doing? I want to be ready to give a defense, a reason for why I believe what I believe, why I stand opposed to certain things and why I would support certain things why I live the way I do, why my value system is the, is the way it is, why maybe I don't live my life the way other people do. And we're friends, but we just live life differently. And they would ask you, why are you doing this? And I would be able, through the Spirit of God, to give them a defense, an explanation, an understanding of the way I live. Even when people would slander me, say, false things against me, cause me hurt and harm. I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to do them not in a belligerent, arrogant, ugly way, but with gentleness and meekness. That's a grace. That is the evidence of God's grace in our lives. 
Not only is it conflict with the world, but Peter's also going to tell us it's an identification with the sufferings of Christ. Chapter 2, verse 21, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow His steps. Chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The only thing strange in our lives should be if you can live as a Christian in the midst of the culture of the world and never experience any conflict. If your life is just like every unbeliever, your goals, your standards, your thought process, your lifestyle is just like theirs, then there's cause for real concern. But when you live for Christ and you suffer trial, that shouldn't, it shouldn't be like, man, this, this is weird. It's not weird because if you look at Christ's life, he suffered conflict constantly in his life. And we are followers of him. And we shall also suffer that. That is the true grace of God. It's a gracious thing in the eyes of the Lord. We've been called to this as believers. And we stand firm in the grace of God. We also find that it's a means of building character. Chapter 5, that sounds like an old man's statement, doesn't it? That's suffering builds character, young man. It's going to do you good for me to do this to you. But it is a sense in where the grace of God is this, that through suffering, there is a sense where God is growing us. He's refining us. He's kind of filling in the chinks. He's revealing certain things to us weaknesses in our character. He is causing us to be like Christ. Listen to what he says here in chapter 5. Let me begin in verse 9. Resist him, Satan, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, Will himself, I like that. It isn't that God is a hands-off God. God is personally involved in the development and shaping of our lives. God himself, will himself, restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. If you want an interesting study, just study all those words. It's a good little study. It's almost a a sermon-type study. But he's going to do all these things through suffering. God comes in, he restores, he builds, he's established, he settles. He he does all these things in our lives. He himself does this. And that's why in verse 11 we would conclude, to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's his kingdom. It is for his glory. Amen. Paul would say it this way in Romans 5. Listen carefully to the wording here. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Similar language to Peter. Stand firm in it. This grace of God that we have in Christ. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Strange way to put it. Why? All things work together for good. You remember that statement? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. We are saved again, born again to a living hope. It is the grace of God. Stand firm in it. Go back to chapter 1, if you would, please. As Paul is, or Peter is concluding this glorious statement of God's grace in our lives and salvation, he says, In this, this living hope, you rejoice. Though now, just like Peter said, though now 
For a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, this tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, the fires of trials, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. The tested genuineness of your faith. I've been privileged to be a pastor now for 41 years. I've had the joy and occasion to speak to a lot of people in those 41 years. Many times people have come to me with doubts. Doubts about their relationship with God. Doubts about their salvation. Am I truly a believer in Christ? That's always a difficult question to answer in most situations. We recognize that probably they are maybe misunderstanding and thinking they have to be perfect in order to be a believer, and we certainly know that that's not the case, that God is working in us. And sometimes it's just a misunderstanding of how God saves. But often it is tied to their life, to how they're living, how they're thinking. And they wonder, if I'm doing this, can I be a genuine believer? Peter says one of the greatest things about suffering, about testing, about trials, about conflict, is it reveals where we really are. I played athletics for much of my young life growing up. And I knew that one thing was true, that you had to be prepared for the game. Game time wasn't the time to start preparing your body and your mind for action. But you needed to already be prepared. It is this sense where the trial reveals where we are. Do we have genuine faith? How are we responding to these things? Are we embracing Christ? Are we finding our hope in Christ? Yes, we're struggling through it. Yes, we're having a hard time. Yes, it is very difficult. It can be gut-wrenching. But in the end, as you work through that process, you come out saying, God is God. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. He is the source of my living hope. I am anchored in Him. He alone is my hope. And it is a display of the genuineness of your faith. And that reality is more precious than any gold you could ever have. Knowing that God is in us, God is working in us, He is my Lord, He is my Master, I am going to be with Him for all eternity. In this, I rejoice with hope, a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. That's the words of Peter. There is grace in suffering. Just very quickly, as we have one more little point I'd like to bring to you that I think is an interesting turn. Look at verse 13 if you're in chapter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of of Jesus Christ. How do you prepare your heart for suffering? How do you prepare your heart to stand firm in the grace of God? That's what he's saying here. Preparing your mind. And a lot of it is our mind, how we think. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. It's going to control what we're doing. Preparing your mind. I memorized this verse 40-some years ago in the King James Version. It says this, gird up the loins of your mind, and you say, what on earth does that mean? Unless you've studied ancient history and wars and all those sort of things, then you'd understand what he's meaning. It's It's an illustration there of a man getting ready to go into battle, and he takes the skirt that he has on, that was the, you know, the, what they would be wearing, he would twist it up, 
and he would tuck it down into his belt. He would gird up his loins so he would be prepared to charge into battle, nothing hindering him from going into battle. We prepare our minds, one, by being sober-minded. Sober-minded simply means this. We think clearly, we're calm, and we're balanced. We look at things from a right perspective. We try to look at suffering. We look at life through the lens of God, through the eternal lens of God, through what God is doing. We don't get overwhelmed by all the things around us, but we try to calm our mind and see what God is doing, looking at things through his perspective. Not an easy task. But if we can do it, God will help us navigate sufferings and difficulty and conflict and life. Just stepping back, taking a breath, looking at God, and watching God help us do that. Be sober-minded. Then he says, we set our hope. Hope's a key word here, this living hope. You take it and you set it. I mean, you're just putting it out there. Set your hope fully. Not in your strength, not in your resources, not in your dream for your life. You set your hope fully, completely on the hope, on the grace that it will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We look at the end goal. It's like the book of Hebrews. Looking unto Jesus who is the author and the what? Finisher of our faith. We run the race with patience. So we set our hope fully upon him. Look at chapter 2, verse 25. There's so many, so many good verses in this book. Right at the conclusion of where he talks about that suffering is a gracious thing. He says, For you, the believer, were straying like sheep, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer, the bishop of our souls. Isn't that a comforting thought to think that God is the shepherd, the one who's leading you, your soul, and he is the overseer. The Lord is my shepherd. He is going to take me. He is the one who is sovereignly overseeing. He's the bishop of my soul. He is going to make sure that it is guarded and it's going to be kept for that last day. Oh, what a glorious truth that is. Look at chapter 4, verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, look at this next word, entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. We sang about it different times this morning. Entrusting your soul to a faithful creator. Just taking your soul and saying, God, I trust you to keep my eternal soul. I trust you. I believe in you. I'm going to stand firm in the grace that you've given to me. I trust you. Psalm 62 is a wonderful psalm. In it, it has this expression. On God rests my salvation. I love that. I love the truth that that portrays. My salvation isn't on me. My salvation is resting on God. I'm entrusting, I'm hoping, I'm fully firm standing on Him. I'm entrusting my soul to Him. We seek to give Him glory. Two more things very quickly. Go back to ch- down to chapter 5. I'm almost done. When we think about suffering, we think about living life, when we think about the grace of God, Peter kind of comes to the conclusion here, and he says in the middle of verse 5, I like to pick up the context here, chapter 5, in the middle of verse 5, clothe yourselves, you see that? Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another, for God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so, that, so at, at the proper time he may exalt you, 
casting all your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. And then he just continues on. Humility is a critical element of preparing our minds to be recipients of the grace of God. Peter puts it in such graphic language here. If we're proud, it's like putting a shield up in front of the grace of God and that grace does not penetrate it because our pride deflects the grace of God from entering into our life. But when we humble ourselves, when we place ourselves under his care, when we place ourselves under his sovereign direction in our life and we're willing to receive the grace he brings into it, then God does great things for his glory. So often when people are dealing with sin, when they're dealing with something in their life that's rooted in and God's wanting to root that out, pride stands, I can do it, I can do this, I'm not wrong, everyone's wrong but me, and it's just pride, 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 and it stinks in the, in the face of God. And that pride, that shield, and it takes every ounce of grace and it will not let it flow into our life. Where God says, this is a gracious thing. I'm pleased to be working in you. I am molding you into Christ. This is something you can rejoice in because it shows you're a genuine believer and pride keeps all of that from flowing. And Humility. He says, you just clothe yourself in it. You just wrap yourself in it. It's like when people see your clothing, they look at it and it just says humility, 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 humility. It's just all over you. You're clothed in humility. Peter says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this, I haven't given you all the message, of course, but what we've talked about, that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. What a letter. I hope you'll take time and look through Peter. I hope that you will embrace this truth, allow it to work in you, and bring forth much fruit for God's glory. Father, thank you for the privilege and opportunity to speak your word today.